You're listening to the Domecast, where news and observer journalists take a look back and forward in North Carolina politics. Welcome to this week's Domecast. I'm Colin Campbell with the News and Observer. Thanks so much for joining us. We've got a great show coming up for you today. Uh, we're going to start off with the, the big topic of the week, uh, redistricting the court battle that's uh, currently going on and all the uh, confusion it has sown. Uh, we'll talk with Craig Jarvis at the News and Observer uh, about that and, and get sort of up to speed on what's uh, next and what are the possibilities we could expect in the next few weeks on that case. Um, and uh, since that sort of overshadowed a lot of the other news, we'll, we'll do a uh, sort of a new feature. I don't know if it'll be a, a standing feature or not, but um, looking at some of our favorite uh uh, unnoticed stories of the week, the, the sort of minor uh, bits of news that uh, that we came across in our reporting and uh, didn't get quite as much of attention in part because of that uh, redistricting news and uh, some of the presidential uh, race action that we saw at the national level this week. And of course, we'll wrap things up as always uh, with our uh, favorite series uh, headliners of the week. So uh, lots to look forward to. Uh, definitely stay with us for the full 30 minutes uh, today here on Domecast. I'm going to start off now uh, talking with uh, Craig Jarvis from the News and Observer about the redistricting case. Hey, Craig. Howdy. Uh, well, uh, I guess we had the, the big surprise last Friday, about about exactly a week ago, as we were all getting ready to uh, to leave and, and call it the weekend. Uh, the, the court decision came down from this uh, federal circuit court uh, that was ordering the legislature to redraw two congressional districts within, uh, I think they only give them about two weeks. Uh, so that created this whole sort of mass confusion of what does this mean for the March primary? Uh, what are the next court steps? What options do the Republican legislators have to try to uphold the, the maps that they've drawn you know, five or six years ago now? Um, where do we stand with this? What's happened this week uh, in this case as far as developments and what's, what's still left to happen? Yeah, well, it really did consume most of the other news this week. And it was uh, even now a week into it, it's still not very clear what's happening or what's next. Just a whole lot of confusion everywhere. But it started with a three judge federal panel last Friday, ruling that the first and 12th congressional districts were unconstitutionally drawn. They were racially gerrymandered. Uh, in fact, one of the judges, uh, I think it was Max Coburn of Asheville, sort of lamented that the stage is set these days with these uh, these map-making software to, to just uh, usher in an era of uh, gerrymandering on steroids, was his term. But uh, <clears throat> what's happened is they, um, they said that they gave the legislature two weeks to withdraw it, to redraw it. On Monday, the legislature filed a request to put everything on hold. So the election has already started. I mean, voting has already started. Several thousand ballots, absentee ballots, have been cast in some of these cases. And uh, they asked the same panel, three-judge panel, to put a hold on things. They said no. And so the appeal went to the Supreme Court, where Chief Justice Roberts uh, didn't act on the request to stay the whole case, but he gave the alleged, uh, or he gave the uh, plaintiffs in the case basically a week to respond to the state's request to put a stay on things. So what that has done is created this kind of little window where the state has to, or the, the plaintiffs have to respond by next Tuesday. The deadline to redraw the maps is, that, is next Friday. In the meantime, the legislature is either going to come in a special session or not. They don't know. I don't know if they're uh, 
secretly redrawing maps already. Well, I guess we haven't really heard what, what they're doing. But Yeah, because they had originally scheduled a, sort of a tentative Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday session yeah. before the, the Supreme Court action meant that they yeah. don't really need, necessarily need to do it immediately. Yeah, uh, kind of looking ahead, House Speaker uh, Moore, Moore's office was alerting all the House members, be prepared to come to Raleigh next week, spend two or three days, uh, because we'll probably have to re- redraw the maps. The Senate, on the other hand, said no. I don't know if they're in denial, but they said no. It's it's going to go in our favor. We're going to there's going to be a stay. That could still happen next week with uh, Justice Roberts, but uh, we, so we just don't know. And also Thursday there was a another state Supreme Court ruling in another. There's there's several lawsuits that have come out of redistricting. There was another one, but basically the bottom line is yesterday the state Supreme Court re, uh, upheld the maps, uh, which kind of prompted the uh, legislature to say. Uh, okay, we've won five out of six at this point. Um, the hope the hope the Supreme Court gets the message. We've got a winning winning record. But as my editor Eric Frederick said, yeah, well the Panthers won seventeen out of eighteen, and they still didn't win the Super Bowl. Yeah, that seems to be the one. I talked to Senator Bob Rucho yesterday about this. He he sort of said, well, you know, this is really one court out of a bunch of them that have, have looked at this, and uh, nearly all of them are saying that their their maps are fair and legal and they're fine. Um, if they've they've dotted all their eyes and crossed their t's, but the question is, what what happens then? Do they delay the whole election? Do they delay the congressional elections? Do they just let everything go ahead? Uh, yeah. Do you think the legislature is ultimately responsible for setting the calendar? If if indeed they do have to go back and redraw the maps, do they then decide? Uh, do we go ahead with most of the primaries in March, and then we do the congressional things that are changing in in May, or do we? Uh, somehow delay everything or, or however it goes. I think so, within the whatever the, the bounds of whatever uh, the, the courts tell them they have to do. I think that would be the function of the legislature to, to figure out what to do. The, what would technically have to happen, the governor will have to call them back into a special session. Then they'll have to come, and I, I don't know if that's going to take a day or two or if it would take a week. And I mean, at some point, the whole General Assembly is going to have to vote on <clears throat> on either the new maps or... Uh, or in setting a new date, I guess. Yeah, and, and I think it's interesting, some of the political implications. I saw an interesting blog post this week on, on Politics NC about uh, if you do have a separate congressional primary uh, that uh, particularly some of the incumbents who are, are already facing a tough primary, such as Renee Elmer's, may end up having a tougher time just because if the turnout's lower, you get a lot more of the, the party activist types uh, who are more likely to support a, a challenger who's making claims that the incumbent's a Republican in name only or something like that. Mm-hmm, uh, mm-hmm. So I, I have to imagine somebody like Elmer's is uh, going to be a little bit worried about the possibility of, of not getting that primary over with in March when the presidential race is on the ballot and there's big turnout. Yeah. Yeah, I think so. She seems to be the one that people noticed right off the bat would be potentially vulnerable in this because she's going to have a tough re-election, I think, anyway. Uh, so this is this can't be good for her. And as as time goes on, I, I think some of these other ramifications will start to become will become apparent. But right now, it's as clear as mud. Yeah, for sure. And and what's interesting to me, I think, looking at this, I talked with our, our veteran legal affairs reporter, Ann Blythe, about this yesterday, is there are sort of almost two issues here. There's sort of the political side of this, which is this whole issue of gerrymandering, the mm-hmm. idea that the Republicans drew the lines in a way that uh, packed all the Democrats into individual districts and sort of stacked the cards in favor of the Republicans. So you went from a fairly balanced congressional delegation between the two parties uh, prior to uh, 2010 to one that's, I think, you've only got three Democrats 
Democrats and the, the other 10 are, are Republicans in our congressional delegation. Mm-hmm. Uh, but it seems like what the court's talking about more is this idea of uh, the numbers of African-American voters, the percentages that you have in these districts. Because mm-hmm. I think in both of the districts that the court uh, ruled were unconstitutional, both when the Democrats and the Republicans have been drawing these districts, they've always been uh, majority-minority districts. They've, they've elected an African-American Congress member. Um, they've had that majority. But, but what Ann pointed out to me was that the numbers are significantly higher under these new drawings. That, mm-hmm. um, I, I think it was maybe 40-some percent African-American 10 years ago, and now it's over 50 percent. And, and the concern is once you go over 50 percent, I guess it becomes more of a, a legal issue, uh, regardless of the whole aspects of are you advantaging one party over the other and are you packing too many people who support one political party? Correct. Yeah, the legal argument, as I understand it, and here we are on thin ice, uh, is at least in one of the districts was that race can be a predominant factor or the predominant factor if the state can justify it. And I think in at least one of the districts, the state's justification was so we don't get sued. <laughs> that was we're drawing it this way so we don't get sued. Uh, and I, uh, so that that was their argument. In addition to, the, to their argument that it was a uh, these were political, uh, these were partisan districts. They were made to benefit the Republican Party, just as the Democrats had done. Um, that's what the three three judge panel disagreed with. So. Uh, uh, yeah, they're, they're, I think they're going to have to do some tweaking. I don't. There was some question about was this affect everybody in the state because you start messing one district and that would seem to affect. Yeah, them they all have third. to be the same number of yeah. people or yeah. I guess registered voters in each district. Yeah. So if you and there's 13 districts uh, all together, but I think that it'll only affect some surrounding districts. I think, as Rob Christensen pointed out to me the other day when we were discussing it, the state doesn't have a lot of large urban areas to draw from. So these maps have been put together with by borrowing from communities, little African-American predominant communities and kind of building the districts that way. So uh, it's hard to kind of like like uh, someplace like Durham will, would be in play. They either move it from one place to the other or uh, southeast Raleigh perhaps. So, it, 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 yeah, I can't explain it beyond that. <laughs> yeah, it's, uh, it's certainly interesting. Uh, my, my favorite quote that I saw this week was actually an old one uh, in, in Rob Christensen's column about uh, Mickey, the, Bishaw. Mickey Michaud back in, I guess it was 20 years ago. The, the 12th district has always been this weird like I-85 snake that picks up uh, – you know, most of the, the predominantly black neighborhoods between Charlotte and Greensboro. Uh, and and Mishaw said as he was running for, for that congressional seat that he could drive down I-85 with his uh, car doors open on both sides and, and hit every voter in his district, which <laughs> I, it's, it's a beautiful image of just like it's really exactly the I-85 right. district. Yeah, it's apparently a textbook case of this is, you know, gerrymandering gone wrong. It's always, it's been, it's just been historically problem problematic. Yeah, so we'll be interested to see uh, how this uh, comes out in the end. Uh, certainly lots of uncertainty around this, lots of stuff to answer. Um, and I don't th- I, I've got a story coming out on, I guess it'll be Sunday, about uh, the, the nonpartisan redistricting legislation that we've had uh, this past session that went really nowhere. I think it, uh, it didn't even... Uh, come up for a vote in either chamber this year. That's right. Yeah, there, there was a huge showing in the in the in the yeah. House as far as co-sponsorships, but yeah. Uh, but yeah, just thud. Yeah. So I, I talked to uh, Bob Rucho yesterday. He basically said, "Absolutely not. This doesn't change the calculus that he he still thinks uh, redistricting commission would be a bad idea." His argument being that uh, even if you appoint people, they're still political appointees, so there's always going to be some sort of politics in the map drawing. Um, other folks uh, like Charles Jeter, a Republican from Mecklenburg County. Um, 
He tells me he he's still going to push for it. Uh, he and a number of other Republicans that uh, feel like that, even though, of course, Jeter is in a very competitive district, one of the few where it's actually a lot of Democrats, and he faces a pretty tough uphill battle for re-election this year. He says it's still uh, it, it's wrong for candidates not to have to have some sort of uh, opposition that, that gives them a uh, at least somewhat of a run for their money. Um, but I mean, the big stumbling blocks have always been the Senate, in part because the House is already uh, voted a few years back to favor some sort of nonpartisan redistricting mm-hmm. plan. Um, but the Senate, uh, and particularly uh, folks like Rucho and then the Senate Rules Chairman Tom Apodaca have basically said, you know, uh, bring it over here, fine, it's going in straight in my trash can, I think was a, a <laughs> quote from from Apodaca this past session. And it is interesting to note that Apodaca and Rucho are both uh, stepping down after this session, so I don't know if that'll uh, change the political calculus in the Senate around this or not. I kind of doubt it, but you never know uh, how some of the leadership changes will result in, in how these things are perceived. Yeah, you know, well, this is also Stam's uh, last session coming up, and this is something that he's worked on for a long time, and he would love to see it happen, but I don't think we'll see anything with it. All right. Well, on that, we'll uh, look forward to seeing what uh, comes up next. Ben Brown from The Insider, Craig Jarvis from The Inno. Thanks for uh, popping in on this segment. And we'll be back in just a few minutes to uh, talk about our uh, favorite uh, obscure stories of the week here on Domecast. Thanks for listening. We all want to be recognized because sometimes we want our voices heard. And we want to recognize you when you come to make your voice heard at the voting booth. This election, you'll be asked to show a photo ID at the polls. And if for some reason you can't get one, no worries. You'll still be able to vote. Just come to the polls and we'll help you cast your ballot. This election, be recognized. Because every voice matters. For information or help getting a free ID, visit voterid.nc.gov. Welcome back to Domecast. I'm Colin Campbell from the News and Observer. Uh, we're going to do a, a bit of a different segment uh, format than we, we've done before on here, and I, I kind of stole this idea a little bit from uh, the uh, 2016 podcast that the folks at the National Journal do, which, by the way, I highly recommend if you're looking for something very similar to Domecast but covering the, the presidential race. They have one where, a segment where they uh, talk about their sort of lesser-known stories of the week or uh, something in their, their reporter's notebook that never quite uh, made it into to print or to uh, sort of the, the national or, or more widespread conversation. So we're going to do a little bit of that this week. I don't know if we'll, uh, we'll keep it as a weekly thing or not, but uh, always fun to try something a little bit new here. So I'll kind of lead this off a little bit with uh, with my favorite, uh, perhaps non-story of the week, but but still uh, sort of fun to note. Uh, Senator Tom Tillis was one of the the many many. Um, politicians that had a Super Bowl bet going on. And of course, uh, everyone from North Carolina who had a Super Bowl bet uh, did not do so well because the Panthers did not win the Super Bowl. Uh, So Tillis was on the Senate floor on Thursday uh, paying up on his bet uh, with uh, one of the Congress uh, senators from Colorado who he had bet with on, on the Super Bowl. And uh, he had to give a speech basically praising the Denver Broncos for, for their performance. And uh, as part of it, I don't, I don't even know this is actually part of the bet, but he decided to offer his own Super Bowl-related poetry. And uh, I think we'll just let, let a, Tillis uh, offer us his poetry himself. Uh, the Bard of the Senate, Tom Tillis, uh, poet extraordinaire. And we'll, we'll take a quick listen to uh, an excerpt from uh, the Super Bowl poem he read on the Senate floor yesterday. I left my hair in San Francisco after the game had haunted me. I'm cleanly shaven, quite sad and bare, while Broncos fans dance like Fred Astaire. 
The loveliness of Santa Clara seems somehow sad today. The glory of my panther season is of another day. But I'm looking forward to next year's season because I expect a Super Bowl repeat for many good reasons. All right, so uh, some, some quality rhymes there from Senator Tillis. Uh, maybe next week we can bring in a poetry expert and, and critique his work, give him some suggestions <laughs> for his, uh, his next efforts at, at poetry. Um, but uh, sort of one example of the, the stories that, that you might miss uh, in, in some of the, the bigger news that's out there now. I'm also, uh, while we're on the topic of Super Bowl bets, I'm excited to see the uh, bet that Governor McCrory had with the governor of Colorado. Supposedly the uh, Governor McCrory is now going to be required to wear a Broncos jersey for a day and also to wear a orange Broncos earring. Um, so I'm really excited to see uh, pictures of that. I hope will some be somewhere on social media for, for us to, to enjoy uh, in the coming week. So always something to look forward to in, in the world of political sports bets. Uh, but now I'll talk to our panel a little about their favorite stories of the uh, more obscure stories of the week. Uh, Craig Jarvis, uh, what what's on your radar that uh, didn't quite get the uh, attention of some of the other stories? Well, this was just an odd little thing. At the, at the Environmental Review Commission uh, this week, which is comprised of state legislators, uh, an official with a state environmental agency, Tom Reeder with DEQ, uh, was giving the commission a report that they had requested on, um, on the uh, – not the safety, but the uh, the impacts of solar panels in the state. And he uh, he got up there and said, we don't really know enough about them. There's a lot of them. There's like 250 million pounds of these solar panels around the state. Uh, there's uh, potentially bad material in them, including mercury in some cases. And there's no standard decommissioning process in the state. These things last about 25 years. Then what he said, it all reminds him of, of the coal ash mess. <clears throat> that brought a, a number of legislators up short. Um, several of them kind of scolded him and said, I, I'm surprised to hear, are you really comparing uh, coal ash pollution with solar panels? And he was saying, no, no, that's not what I'm saying. I mean, what I'm saying is coal ash was a, a looming problem that we just didn't deal with for decades, and now it's a problem, and I would hate that to be the same case with solar panels. Uh, of course, the solar industry is saying that's ridiculous. There, you know, there aren't dangerous materials in them. Uh, there is a standard uh, decommissioning process that they use voluntarily, and uh, but it, but it was just kind of a it underlined that uneasy tension between some in the environmental community and the state Divis uh, department of environmental quality over how you know what their priorities are yeah and what was interesting that <laughs> you know this is the state's top uh, environmental official and it's it's similar to some of these concerns we've been hearing about solar panels going in on farms. Uh, there's, there's been right. some stories about uh, folks who are concerned about the impact on farmland. I think there was something similar I wrote about in a legislative hearing a couple uh, months back where a state senator or representative said Cook, something. I about, think. Yeah, I think it was, yeah. it was Bill Cook who said <clears throat> that uh, he was concerned that it was sort of ruining farmland, that right. you weren't be, wouldn't be able to grow crops uh, right. if you were to remove the solar panels, that it was taking over a lot of, uh, of good farmland, which is, is interesting that we've seen. It seems like it's a... Uh, become this sort of uh, backlash against the solar industry among some of the folks on the 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 far end of the conservative spectrum who sort of want to sow a little bit of doubt about what has been presented as this sort of win-win for farmers and the environment um, that they feel like should still raise some concerns. And, and there's some questions about the scientific validity of those concerns from some of the experts I've talked to. But uh, it's interesting to kind of see that percolate up to the, the level of the, the state's essentially top environmental regulator. Yeah. <clears throat> and even a lot of the Republican legislators are, are very in favor of solar, the solar industry. It's a, you know, it's an industry and, and they want to encourage industry. The issue is whether they should get government help along the way. And 
uh, that's become kind of nationally started to emerge as a uh, as a boogeyman. Yeah, so we'll we'll see if we get any more interesting uh, analogies or comparisons as, as that debate moves forward. And I know there's a significant lobby in the uh, from among the solar industry at the, the legislature, so I'm sure there'll be some activity on that front uh, in the short session. Yep. All right, turning next to uh, Ben Brown from the Insider. Uh, what's your uh, top uh, lower level story of the week this week? So uh, a couple weeks ago, two or three weeks ago on Domecast, I submitted that fire extinguishers should be the headliner of the week. And I and believe I picked fire extinguishers. Thank you, it won. <laughs> um, but we can only tell you part of the story at the time. What we left out was what we had yet to verify officially, um, which was the name of the law enforcement officer involved in this kind of weird situation involving fire extinguisher sales and service. Um, even though we had a good idea of who it was, we couldn't say it. Well, we, we know now that it was... Um, Wes Little, who's the son of a former gubernatorial candidate from last decade, um, we know that he's the guy implicated by this state audit – or the, this, the state audit came out, this, this report on it. It didn't mention the guy's name, but the audit found that a, a DMV law enforcement official had a, had a company on the side, that he was doing business on the side with automobile, automobile dealerships that he, in his law enforcement capacity, regulated for the state. And that's a conflict situation because – he could be in a position to either pressure those dealerships for sales or clientship. Not saying that happened, but that was the situation. And yes, it was a sales and service business dealing uh, in fire extinguishers. Well, we wrote a series of stories, uh, pieced together how we figured out it was Wes Little. Uh, DMV wouldn't ever really comment except to say that Little was no longer on the job as of February 4th, which they didn't tell me until Thursday, February 11th. Um, before that, we had been told that he was just on administrative leave. Uh, we also know that in fall 2015, he was demoted and saw a salary reduction for something that we can't get on the record, except to know that it was a personal conduct issue. So to recap, audit report comes out, doesn't name him. We figure out who it is. He's no longer on the job. And by the way, this whole thing started uh, from a tipster. Uh, the auditor's office has a hotline, the state auditor's office. They have this hotline that you know people can call in about things that they think aren't right with state government and the auditor's office will investigate and that's what happened here yeah so it strikes me as odd that there's just so little information out of dmv on that you'd think they'd want to sort of exonerate uh, the organization at least to say you know we've dealt with the employee that, that may have been doing this we've got protections in place to make sure nothing similar ever happens again but it sounds like they're not even releasing what they're required under law to release about an employee who's either i mean you're pretty much required to say if, if someone leaves you need to it's public knowledge did they resign from the job? Were they terminated? Right. If they were terminated, there's a termination letter that yeah. explains why they were fired. So I, I requested that information from the DMV. Uh, and as we're speaking right now, it's Friday morning. As of close of business Thursday, I hadn't received a, repl a reply to my request for clarification. Was he fired? Did he resign? Um, I asked uh, state HR and they said the data that they were looking at at the time didn't indicate a termination and didn't indicate that he had been transferred anywhere else in state government. So it could be a resignation. We don't know officially for sure at this point. As far as the auditor's reports go, it's kind of standard practice for them not to name the individuals that they're discussing in their audit reports because it's not their employee. They figured it's up to the other agency to uh, to say who it is. So um, I, I still never got an official confirmation from DMV saying, this is the guy who's in the audit report. They, they didn't phrase it that way, but they did respond to me to say that Wes Little was no longer on the job as of February 4th. So 
uh, there's still a little bit more work to do on this story. Yeah, I'm, I'm curious too. You know, the most state government positions, there's the I guess the sort of political appointee portion of the the staff, and then there's the folks who are, are subject to various state personnel laws, and they have to meet certain requirements that folks. Uh, at, at the upper level who sort of can be hired or fired by the governor's administration um, at, at any time. And I, I'm curious if, if his position is one of those uh, sort of patronage positions where, it, you know, having connections helps you get a job versus one so, or so far down the totem pole that it's really a more of an objective process as to, you know, being hired or fired to a position. Yeah, couldn't say. Something to wonder about. But, yeah, but, I, but it's interesting the, that those kinds of exempt positions have expanded dramatically under the McCrory administration. Yeah, so it's one of the, I guess, the <clears throat> questions to, to answer as this story continues to unfold is, you know, was this a guy who was in his job for any sort of political connections or was he... Uh, just a regular old state employee who happens to be related to somebody who's uh, been fairly prominent in North Carolina politics in the past. But yeah, be interested to see as it as it continues. Sounds like he'll be doing more reporting on this in the the coming weeks as as more little drips and dregs of information come out about the case. Yeah, I've been getting emails about it, and um, yeah, there's definitely probably some more follow up to do. All right. Thanks, Ben. Um, And we're going to take a quick break and we'll be back with a fairly small edition of Headliners of the Week since we've got a a two-man panel today. But uh, we'll be back with that in just a moment. The odds of becoming a signed artist and having four number one albums, one in 100 million. The odds of going on to win seven Grammy Awards, one in 1.4 million. The odds of this performer having a child diagnosed with autism, 1 in 68. I'm Tony Braxton, and I encourage you to learn more at AutismSpeaks.org slash signs. Autism Speaks. It's time to listen. Brought to you by Autism Speaks and the Ad Council. Welcome back to the Domecast. I'm Colin Campbell of the News and Observer sitting in the hosting chair this week. Thanks so much for tuning in and hanging out with us on our uh, romp through the world of uh, politics here in North Carolina. Time for our final segment of the week, Headliners of the Week, as always. Who is your Headliner of the Week? Who is your Headliner of the Week? Who is your Headliner of the Week? Headliner of the Week. And uh, we got a small panel this week, so... uh, it would be sort of a head-to-head uh, matchup in the, the headliners of the week world. Uh, we'll start out with uh, Ben Brown from The Insider. Ben, who is your headliner of the week? Okay, I'm going to go with Reba Miller-Bowser, the uh, 86-year-old woman who applied to get a photo ID from the DMV so she could vote this year, and she brought all kinds of paperwork with her, and then she hit a snag when there still wasn't what wasn't enough to. I, I think uh, the issue was to prove that her middle initial M on certain documentation stood for Miller. Um so they couldn't verify specifically who she was. The story the story blazed across social media, got a lot of attention. Uh, the DMV ended up uh, uh, apologizing and basically saying, you know, we got that one wrong, and they're going to try to make it right for her. So I'm going to say Reba Bowser. Yeah, it's interesting how this sort of one case where it sounds like maybe the DMV really did make a mistake. Or some employee in one of their offices just didn't handle it right, but it has sort of fueled the... Uh, uh, the the fire against uh, the voter ID mandate and and, and creates this very uh, relatable uh, individual story an individual person who's sort of suffering from the the voter ID requirement. Yeah, that that story uh, continues. I, I saw that uh, Bruce Isloff at the News and Observer uh, just tweeted out some uh, some updates. So uh, he's been on that story. Follow him for that. 
Yeah, definitely. So there should be more developments in that and probably some more cases to come up around uh, voter ID in, in, in the coming months. Uh, turning next to Craig Jarvis of the News and Observer. Craig, who is your headliner of the week? Well, I just thought of this. I'm going to go with Jack O'Hale, a Smithfield lawyer, a very prominent lawyer. has done a lot of work around here for many years. He has been representing a state trooper for years and years now who I think in 2011, somewhere around there, maybe even earlier than that, uh, uh, was videoed kicking his dog. He was a, he was a, he had a drug dog and he was trying to discipline it and he appeared that he went too far. Patrol fired him, but they didn't do it right. It kind of, the firing came at the behest of the governor himself who didn't like the uh, governor easily. who didn't like the publicity that this was generating. He eventually got his job back. State's been fighting him every step of the way, uh, even down to the attorney's fees, which uh, Jack O'Hale just recently won a ruling, uh, uh, bumping his uh, the fees that he was he's eligible to get to something like like 120,000 I think it was uh, the the state had agreed to pay him 75,000 so the state's appealing this one as well so this could keep going for a while yeah it'll be interesting to see how that uh, fight uh, comes out uh, certainly Jack O'Hale is a formidable uh, opponent in the courtroom uh, I actually had some dealings with him back when I was a reporter in our, our Smithfield office early in my career I did a story about a, a murder trial where he was representing the the defendant and um I was uh, talking to the, the family of the, the murder victim, and they were sort of talking about their concerns about the how the case had unfolded, and we did a big story about that. And uh, about a week later, I get a knock on my door on a Sunday morning from a, a Smithfield police officer who has a subpoena in their hand for all of my reporter's notes uh, pertaining to my interviews with the, the family of the victim in this murder case. And it was Jack O'Hale who huh. uh, wanted to, to get his hands on uh, my reporter's notes. Now, if anyone has actually seen the notepads on my desk in the office, uh, you could subpoena them all you want but you're not going to get anything of value out of them because my handwriting is so terrible. Right. So Still, I hope we won that. Uh, yeah, we did. I, I, I didn't have to give up my notes on that, thanks to our, our uh, fearless attorney, uh, Amanda Martin, over at the, the North Carolina Press Association. But uh, certainly uh, interesting to see his name back in the news after after having that years ago. I would want Jack to represent me if I was in that position. Yeah, yeah. if I'm ever charged with murder, that's right. the, the guy I'm hiring for or sure. Kicking, <laughs> or anything. Kicking your dog. Or yeah, exactly. <laughs> Take on the governor in the state. That's, that's the guy you want in your corner all right so uh let's see between those two uh cases i think i'm gonna have to go with bins on this just because it's it's so interesting to see this this uh elderly woman sort of coming to the forefront of this incredibly hot button issue around the state right now so uh reba miller bowser is her name correct yeah so uh Mm -hmm. she will be our headliner of the week and perhaps uh one of the the sort of least political politician-y headliners of the week we've had in a while. Uh, so congratulations to her. I'm sure she'll be thrilled to learn that the Domecast has named her the, the headliner of the week if she ever <laughs> listens to us, which I kind of doubt. Well, yeah, from from what I heard, from what I read in the reporting was that she was discouraged kind of by the situation and people were looking for ways to kind of pump her back up to get back to the DMV and, and get your photo ID so you can vote in 2016. So Yeah, well, hopefully being headliner of the week will continue, <laughs> give her the energy to continue her her fight for, for her right to vote and, and all that. So uh, with with that, I think that takes us to the end of uh, this week's show. Uh, join us again next week, and uh, we're hoping to uh, get some of the uh, candidates for office in the primary uh, to uh, appear either by phone or in person on our show in the next uh, couple of weeks. So we'll we'll see if that works out. Uh, but uh, interesting campaign coverage to look forward to here on Domecast and, of course, in the News and Observer and the Insider. So stay tuned to all of that, and uh, have a great week. Thanks for listening. 
You've been listening to The Domecast, a production of the News and Observer and the Insider State Government News Service. You can keep up with the conversation by reading Under the Dome in the daily print edition or online at newsobserver.com. The Insider is found online at ncinsider.com.